well, with Resurrection Sunday being next week, this would be Palm Sunday, the day we remember Jesus entering the Holy City before Passover to shouts of Hosanna. And we sang, you are my king, you are my king. And in essence, that's what people were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, a messianic title. You are our king. And they wanted him to save them from oppression from Rome and maybe oppression from the rich, make all things right, restore Israel back to the place of prominence, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And in less than a week, they would stop shouting, you are my king, and instead shout, crucify him, crucify him. And this very duplicitous behavior is exactly what James has been calling our attention towards in the book of James. That we say we're God's people and that His truth matters to us and yet we substitute our own wisdom for God's wisdom. In fact, this is God's major indictment on mankind. That in the Garden of Eden, man and woman chose their wisdom and knowledge over God's. Will you surely die? No, we won't die if we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our eyes will be open and we will be like God. We'll know good and evil. We'll have our own godly wisdom. Thereby judging God's perfect wisdom and seeking a wisdom higher than God's wisdom. And we've inherited this Sin nature, have we not? And we can look at our lives and wherever we see problems and trouble and conflict, certainly the blame is because God's wisdom is not being followed. And so last week, James gave us three fruits of pride, rotten fruits of pride. Rotten on the inside. Fruit looks good on the outside sometimes, but you bite into it, not so good. We covered two of them last week, slander and presumptuous planning. We'll hit the third this week, trusting in riches. This is America. Trusting in riches is a national pastime. We need to hear these words this morning. James Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields in which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This is strong, terrible, prophetic Old Testament prophetic type language. And it would be a huge mistake for any of us this morning to assume we are not the rich. Now we understand because we preached in a previous sermon that the rich, this small segment of the population in James's time, were those who used their wealth to gain power and influence and oppress the poor, thereby making themselves richer and richer and richer and keeping the poor more and more in destitute poverty. And that they would bribe the law courts so that the poor had no recourse. If there's one of you out here today, let the Holy Spirit bring conviction. But for most of us, as we call ourselves Christians, we need to be careful 
not to say, well, that's not me. Listen carefully this morning and let the Lord teach you how easily we can become those who trust in riches instead of trust in Christ. After all, riches buy material things, and material things are the things we can see and hold and touch. They're easier for us to deal with than faith in a God we can't see but know is there. We are all guilty of assuming at one time or another that the poor brought it on themselves. Perhaps through laziness or profligate living. Who hasn't been down in Bakersfield at the In-N-Out Burger and the Panhandler ruined your lunch? And you thought, why can't he go get a job? Or don't we have social services for this kind of thing? And we are also guilty of convincing ourselves that we are completely responsible for our financial success through our our hard work. Never mind you were born with certain gifts and abilities that equate to income in this country. If you can handle a math equation, the STEM jobs, that's science, technology, engineering, mathematics, there's so many of them that we have to recruit overseas to fill those positions. Or you were raised in a loving, gracious family that prepared you for the real world and taught you discipline and self-control, maybe even pulled some strings, used their connections to get you your first job, second job, third job. By God's gracious providence, you avoided major injury, major illness. And so your 401k is doing pretty good and and we think it's a sign of our own goodness and our own righteousness. Maybe not to the extent that the people did in Jesus' day where riches was a sign of God's blessing because of your goodness. Poverty was a sign of God's heavy hand of judgment on you. But I'm sure each of us brings a bit of that to the table, whether we like to admit it or not. God has blessed this church abundantly, amen, as we sit on our new carpet. Where other churches were hit hard by the recession, ours continued to prosper and flourish. I'd like to believe and think I can say with some conviction that because of our commitment to the Word of God and the Great Commission and missions, that is part of the reason God has continued to bless us financially. But not for a second am I going to say the reason we remain financially prosperous is because somehow we're more righteous than the church down the street or the church in the next town. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? We may accomplish more as a church with less resources. Maybe we depend too much on our financial resources. We all pray that prayer but secretly wish we don't have to test our faith in that way. But who knows? The country we're living in may soon take away our tax-exempt status to try to get us to change our doctrine. I don't know what that would equate to financially, but we would take a hit, that's for sure. But we would keep preaching the Word of God and keep 
preaching the gospel. Amen? That first rotten fruit, slander, we, we need to look at where we make these substitutions. Paul says in Romans 1, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. So in slander, James says we substitute our laws and judgments for God's law and His perfect judgment, which leads us then to think or speak condemning words. We don't believe the words are slanderous. We believe they're true about the person. Slander is speaking lies or untruths about another person for the sake of tearing down their reputation and often with the added benefit of somehow our reputation or our situation being enhanced. We bring others low with our words so we could bring ourselves high. Secondly, James says we're guilty of presumptuous planning, which has arrogance at its root. We substitute our own sovereignty in the place of God's sovereignty, arrogantly thinking we can make our own plans and by our own hard work and ingenuity, we'll pull them off. And the more we succeed in in life, the more proof we have of just that. This is a church filled with the successful. You're hard-working folk, and you've, God's given you many gifts, and you've done well in life. And yet anything that we accomplish that has eternal value can only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we see unbelievers doing lots of things, and lots of things well, which tells us Jesus must have something else in mind when he says, you can do nothing apart from me. And so we must humble ourselves and ask God, what is his plan? What is his agenda? How do you want me to use the gifts you've given me, my talents, my gifts, my profession, my possessions. How can I build your kingdom? Now we take those first two substitutions and we combine them together in this third one. If we substitute ourselves for God's law and judgment and thereby condemn others, and we substitute our sovereignty for God's, thereby saying, whatever I will to do must be right, then we combine the two to hoard and amass wealth and possessions while oppressing the poor. See, the oppression of the poor is that slander part. Well, they, they don't deserve nice things because they blew it. That's slander. You don't know. And even if you got to know them and that's the case, did not each of us come to Christ with absolutely nothing? Worse than nothing, we came with a bank account filled with wretchedness and sinfulness. And we use that presumptuous planning and arrogance to say, I have a right to make as much as I can and amass as much as I can. In spite of how clearly God condemns such thinking and such behavior. You're going to hear a lot of Old Testament references this morning and references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So what's the great substitute here? Trusting in riches, first, firstly, substitutes earthly riches for eternal treasure. We think the stuff here is the good stuff. And yet Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. 
Now, I know, I get it. I had a great meal yesterday. It was so warm, and we barbecued some fillets. Man, God is good. He gives good things here, but these are not the best things, beloved. And when they become the best things, that's where we go wrong. This isn't a sermon about taking a vow of poverty and joining some kind of monastery. Martin Luther tried that. It just made him more prideful and more exasperated. Our salvation is a free gift from God, and He showers us with with blessing, but earthly blessing can become a temptation so quickly, so quickly. Whatever we serve for dinner tonight, I guarantee you can't compare to what we had last night. And the looks of complaining and grumbling will surround my table. And we have to remind the kids, I have one who wants to eat every ten minutes. (laughs) And we have to remind them that there are people in this world that get one meal a week. You can make it till bedtime. There will be breakfast in the morning. James 5.1, come now you rich. It's that same language from James 4.13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Same come now. Come now people, come on. Come now you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He's saying, well what miseries? Life is good. I got a fat wallet. A good job. What miseries? If you're placing your trust in riches and that's your God, then miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Riches and, and garments. The amassing of wealth and the hoarding of material possessions. Remember James says, you see your brother, he has no coat. You've got plenty and you won't give him a coat. Some commentators believe this is an allusion to the fact that the rich would often have their gold sewn into their clothing. Not only for safekeeping, but to show off to everyone your riches. We have our own ways of showing off our wealth. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, how can gold and silver rust? That's what makes them precious metals. Commentators say, well, the gold and silver of that day was not 100% pure. There were impurities in there, and they could tarnish. But I think we're talking about hyperbole here, that in the last days, your gold and your silver will not only be useless, but it will also testify against you So there's hyperbole there. Even your gold and silver will be corrupt, rusted, tarnished. It'll be worse than useless to you. It'll be a a reminder of your own sin. And it says, and their rust will be a witness against you. Pile of gold. This is where you put your trust. Look at it now. Where's your God now? How is this pile of money going to help you? And the hyperbole continues and will consume your flesh like fire. Normally, it's the gold that's put in the fire to purify it. This is a reversal of fortune. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. There's the reminder, beloved. We are in the last days. Every day for the Christian is the last days. Jesus' return is imminent. In what condition will He find you upon His return? What will you be busy doing? What will you be thinking about? Your portfolio? Your 401k? 
your next purchase. I know, we're sitting on brand new carpet. Again, this doesn't mean to live in abject poverty. It was time for new carpet. We were good stewards of what God blessed us with. We thank Him for the resources for this carpet, which will hopefully last another 25 years. Keep your coffee outside. (laughs) Although it is coffee-colored, so... That's not to invite coffee in here. Listen to Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rush destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. You invest in eternal matters Your investment is safe for all eternity. You win souls for the kingdom, invest in the Great Commission. That is a safe investment. 100% return on that investment. You invest your time in discipleship. That will pay dividends every time. If we invest what is collected in the offering plates to make disciples of all nations, that is a worthy investment. Aren't you tired of worrying about the next ding you're going to get on the side of your car? Do you park way, way out there so that your car will be safe? Are you worried about your latest possession being stolen from your house? Worried about ruining your newest garment? Are all the apps on your phone, the NASDAQ, and you got to get up early because the foreign market opens early? What a terrible way to live. What a terrible way to live. It's not only wrong, but out of compassion and pity for you, it's a prison of your own making. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? I don't know, I can't judge your heart. But Jesus says, look and see where your treasure is and you'll find your heart hanging out there. Look at your checkbook. What do you spend money on? It's tax season. You've got to go through all of your finances. Print the pie chart. Where's the fattest pieces of pie? Is it earthly things or eternal things? Secondly, trusting in riches substitutes self-indulgence and oppression for mercy and compassion. God wants us to be merciful, compassionate people because He is merciful and compassionate, is He not? Is it not our aim to be like Christ? The Son of Man had no place to rest His head. He gave all he had, including his life, for others. And he's not asking that much of us. This is not a sermon this morning to guilt you into giving more. Guilty feelings are a horrible motivation to give. If you've ever received a gift from anyone out of compulsion, and they're trying to assuage their own guilt. I don't like those gifts. They're strings attached. But when somebody loves you, you can't stop them 
from giving you a gift. Let the love of Christ motivate you to love others through mercy and compassion. James 5.4 Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you like Abel's blood in Genesis when Cain murdered him. His blood cried out against Cain. I don't know how many of you own businesses. This is difficult for us, most of us. The way our profession works, our pay is more indirect. But have you hired somebody before to mow your fields? This is Tehachapi. We have weeds that need to be whacked. The direct example here was that day laborers in James's day depended on that pay for that day's work to buy bread for their family. And they were at the mercy of the rich. Only the rich were hiring. And what if he decides just to not pay at the end of the day? What recourse do you have? The rich own the courts. They own the judges through bribery. They wrote the laws and rewrote the laws in ways that you could forfeit your earnings as a laborer if you didn't do this just right or broke this little rule. What do we call that today? The, the fine print. And there are those who in their pride believe that that's just good business. Nothing personal. Just good business. I could hire a professional laborer to come out and mow my field, or I can pay some teenager under the table at one-fourth the going rate. Hey, he got a little change in his pocket, and I saved some money. I know it's not a direct one-on-one correlation, but look at your life and see, is there a pattern of generosity when you have opportunities to give? Or is your MO that where I can save a buck, I save a buck? And it's some kind of contest to see who could be the most shrewd. Are you the kind of person that you always feel you get all the bad breaks financially, but then when somebody blesses you, You believe you deserve that blessing. You go out to eat. Somebody else picks up the tab. Sweet. But then the dishwasher breaks that week. And you're saying, why does this kind of stuff always happen to me? As if we don't all have financial issues that we have to deal with that we didn't foresee. And so instead of gifts from people, they become expectations. I deserve to be blessed. I deserve a raise. I deserve gifts. But on the other side of the coin, it's, well, I didn't deserve for the washing machine to go out this week. And what? Brakes on the car? Yes, people, they wear out. You're going to need brakes. It's not a nefarious plot against you. I know most of you are not this kind of rich, oppressive boss who withholds wages. And if we only focused on that, we would leave this place today with no conviction. We would look to corporate America, to the man. He's got to pay one day. And yes, indeed, there are those, and they will pay. They will have to stand before their judge, but so will we. And in Christ, we know that we won't stand before our judge for our justification. If we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, our justification is secure. 
But we will stand before him and give an account for what he's entrusted each of us with. Paul calls it the Bema seat of Christ. Bema, the, the bench. And he'll judge every work. You know the parables of the talents being distributed. What did you do with the talents? Did you bury it somewhere or did you invest it in the kingdom for God's glory? Let's look at some of this Old Testament prophetic language. Where is James getting this language from? Leviticus 19.13 You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Again, these, these day laborers, the rich weren't paying them. But it's the only work they could get. Jeremiah 22.13 Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. And let me bring this home to you. Are you the kind of person that is always expecting favors from others and borrowing other people's stuff? But when it comes time to lend out your things, you're like, nah, uh I paid good money for this and they might mess it up. Well, I'd, I'd love to come and help so-and-so move, but I'm kind of busy Saturday. I've got stuff to do. But when it's your turn to move, you want the church to turn out in full force. If we're just focused on these absolute rich and poor scenarios, our sin nature is so subtle, so insidious, so buried deep, we'll say this doesn't speak to us. This is for other people. Isaiah 5, 9, In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn. That's what Lord of Sabaoth means. It means hosts. The outcry of those who do the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is a direct allusion to Isaiah 5, 9. Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. So in Isaiah's day when but when Babylon came in, not even the rich were going to be spared. Beloved, do not let your riches give you a false sense of security. Yes, some humanity affects the poor and the rich can survive unscathed. But... The calamity on the final day of judgment, nobody can escape by their riches. James 5.5, 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Now, if that doesn't speak to each of us as Americans, I don't know what line is going to do it. And you see, we play this game where we compare ourselves to somebody who has nicer stuff. And it makes me feel like I have not lived a life of luxury and in self-indulgence. We never go to the poor side of town to compare ourselves. Unless we want to feel good about ourselves. But not when we want conviction about whether or not we live too well. See how that works? I'll look to the rich so I won't feel guilty about the way I live, and I'll look to the poor when I don't want to feel guilty about being lazy. Otherwise, it would look like this. Well, those poor, the people are poor because they're lazy. Now I'm going to compare myself to the rich. I must be lazy too because look how much he has. But no, we don't do that. We always put ourselves in the best possible situation the way we perceive ourselves. This is wrong. It should not be. It says you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
with no thought about the coming judgment, no thought about our king returning and asking for an account. We assume we're going to the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. It says here that for some, though, in a twist of fate and dramatic irony, they've fattened their own hearts in the day of slaughter. Ezekiel 16.49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. What's the first sin you think about when you hear the city of Sodom? Don't say it out loud. And you say, well, that's not my sin, so I must be off the hook. But Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of other sins. How are you doing in the area of helping the poor and needy? Jesus says riches can blind us to our true spiritual condition. We believe that our riches is a sign that God is blessing us and is happy with us. And again, sure, that is one of God's blessings. But there are many who are poor who are blessed far more than any of us. It is not the only barometer of God's blessing. Look at Job. He had everything and then he had nothing. And then he had everything again. Did God's love for him and blessing for him change in any of that? No, the circumstance changed, but not God's relationship with Job. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if your spiritual eyes are working the way they're supposed to work, you'll be filled with light, enlightenment, truth. But if your eye is actually bad and you think it's good, then the light that you see inside you is actually darkness. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that you think is in you is really darkness, how great is that darkness? You're following the logic here. You say, well, I think my eye works fine and look at the proof. I live such a blessed life great material wealth, great material blessing, happiness, ease, comfort. What if all of that is actually darkness and you have lots of it? Now, I can't say for each of you what the condition is of your spiritual eyes. That's something you need to go before the Lord this week. But Jesus does say no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So there's the barometer. Who are you serving? Will you still serve God if the money runs dry? Could you be poor and serve God and bless God? Ultimately, Jesus tells us that the rich may forfeit their eternal reward. Luke 12, 15, Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat Drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, 
This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're Americans. We buy bigger houses and bigger storage lockers and more storage lockers, and we build extra garages and extra sheds for all of our toys. I cannot tell you how much is enough because it's the wrong question. The question is, why do you want these things? It always comes down to why. What is your motivation? I can't give you those easy answers. Well, here's the list. Don't exceed this many. Because what will happen? We'll become legalists. And that's not a heart bent towards God. That's the easy way out. The root is pride, and ultimately, pride must kill or be killed. Pride must kill or be killed. To make ourselves feel better than others, pride will slander, which kills or murders another man's reputation. Pride cannot live in the same kingdom with a sovereign God. I cannot be sovereign if God is sovereign. Therefore, pride must kill the sovereign God. Well, I don't want him killed. Well, if you make yourself above God, he's no longer God. You've, you've killed his essence. You can't have a God that obeys you. And finally, if riches is what you're putting your faith in, then you must kill faith in God. You can't have faith in riches and faith in God. One of them has to die. I knew a man who I thought had great faith in God years ago, lost his riches and his faith in God evaporated. So where was his faith after all? I hope it doesn't come to that for any of us. This is a difficult verse to translate, James 5, 6. That very end of the verse where it says, He does not resist you, I put it in brackets. The NIV says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. How did we go from righteous man, singular, to innocent men, plural? Why did we go from resist to oppose? The word for righteous is ton dikaion in the Greek. It's a singular noun. But we can speak of the rich... Plural, using the singular, right? The rich. Which means it could either be a rich man or the rich people. Is James talking about the singular or the plural? And the word resist, the last time we saw that word in James, it was in James 4, 6. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's generally a rule of translation. If you're going to translate a word one way, don't change the translation a few verses later. And so perhaps what this verse is really saying is, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Does not God oppose you? This particular 
verse in the manuscripts we have had no punctuation. So we don't know if it's a sentence, a declarative sentence, or an interrogative, a question. But it could be, does not God oppose you? So let's take it either way, because either way works. Let's take it either way. The first way is, the word means resist. And James is talking about the poor who are oppressed, and they don't have the power to resist you. So it's, they don't even resist you. And again, before you say, well, this isn't me, I, I don't pay anyone unfairly. When I do hire people, I, I pay the babysitter right away. I think I'm a good tipper at the restaurant. You know, you're, you're going through your list of all the people that you pay. I pay my taxes on time, and that pays people's salaries. But what if the righteous one James is talking about ultimately is Jesus Christ? You have condemned and put to death the righteous one because of your pride. Isn't it all of our pride that nailed him to the cross? The cross is unnecessary if we're sinless. And he did not resist like a sheep before his shears, like the lamb to the slaughter. He went to the cross willingly, quietly, He took our condemnation upon himself. We slander and condemn, especially the poor. We make arrogant plans about making money and spending it on ourselves. And then we oppress the poor, trusting in our riches as proof of our righteousness. But ultimately, Jesus is the righteous one who did not resist. I'm thankful he didn't resist. Are you? But what if, what if the correct translation is opposed? You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Does not God oppose you? What if what James is doing is bringing us full circle back to James 4, 6? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is anticipating we might say, well, I'm not that prideful. And he says, what about your slander? What about your presumptuous planning? You haven't ever slandered someone in your heart? You've never planned presumptuously? You've never trusted in riches? Come now, James says, come now. We are the proud, and God is opposed to the proud. Does not God oppose you? And if that was the end of the sermon, we'd leave with no hope. We would walk out of here condemned, saying, God is indeed opposed to me. I don't care what my riches say. I don't care how good a person I think I am. But fortunately, that's not the last word. God opposes the proud, but, but, gives grace to the humble, a greater grace, James says. There's hope for us, prideful people. The cross is our hope. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the foot of the cross. God, I I am a slanderer. I am a presumptuous planner. I do trust in riches. But I love you and I trust in you more. Teach me to trust in you more and more each day. Teach me to be merciful and compassionate. Teach me how to help others without hurting. I know we don't just write checks and just give them away but it means we have to care enough to get to know someone and find out their story and 
how we can really help them. That, that takes time. That gets messy. I'm sure glad Jesus took the time and got messy for me. Amen. Let's pray that God would humble us so He wouldn't be opposed to us. Heavenly Father, this is such a difficult teaching for us. For whatever reason, in Your good pleasure and purposes, we've been born into the wealthiest country the world has ever known. Enjoying technological advances the world could never have dreamed of. We go to supermarkets filled with food. We don't have to wait till the end of the day to be paid. We can just put it on a card. Lord, may we not be deceived that somehow this is a sign of your blessing, but we look for the true things in our life that are a sign of your blessing and a sign of our humble obedience. May each of us individually be known as merciful and compassionate people. May Country Oaks Baptist Church be known as a merciful house of compassion. May all feel welcomed here that we can all kneel side by side with our brothers and sisters in spite of our social standing at the foot of the cross and receive your grace together. And may we be found faithful so on that day when you return there will be no shame and embarrassment that we could give a good report to our King and our Master in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.